I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. Hello, hello, hello. Sorry for the long-awaited episode. It's been one of those weeks. Had me extremely busy. And uh, I'm still driving. I was hoping to have stopped and taken a bunch of notes by now. I have some notes down, but I haven't finished the notes. And since I'm driving, I can't look at the notes. So we're going to kind of free flow off the top of the head because, you know, we can do that. But with the election right around the corner um, and all the craziness going on with the media and everything, I wanted to talk a little bit about all that stuff. I just wanted to kind of throw, put my opinion out there. Um, most of y'all have some sort of idea as to what my opinion is on a lot of this stuff, but I want to get it on the record, so to speak. And, uh, I don't know. I, I'm probably not going to make any predictions. Um, cause I'll talk about that at the end, what I'm seeing with, um, the conservatives and the liberals and, um, kind of <clears throat> the way I, I view it, but, um, I mean, first things first, this Hunter Biden story is fucking nuts. Um, there are videos out there that some of y'all may have seen. There are videos out there that I ran into that I wish I would not have run into. Um, and <laughs> it's fucking crazy. Um, I mean, him getting a foot job and smoking crack and rumor has it that's his 14-year-old niece in that. I don't know. There is another video that of a young girl in her underwear and he's in a, a little split screen as if they're on a Zoom call or um, a Skype call of some sort and he's jacking off while she's in her panties rolling around on the bed and she's like, I don't know, 14-ish, I guess. I don't, I have no idea how old she was. It's fucking disgusting. And um, last night I read an article that said the DOJ confirmed they are investigating Hunter Biden for um, money laundering, among other crimes, but uh, did not say anything about the the pictures or the videos or the conversations with his father about the accusations of pedophilia or molesting children, whatever those accusations amount to, I, I don't really know. Um, he was saying that he was being accused of being sexually inappropriate around an unnamed underage girl. And that he was not allowed to see the kids for whatever that's worth. It's, it's disturbing shit. Then you have um, the entire 
<clears throat> episode with with Burisma and uh, I haven't really seen much revealing there um, other than there was um, an email from the uh, CEO of Burisma and forgive me I, I have enough trouble with American names I really do not I don't don't remember these people's names off the top of my head, which is why I needed notes for this episode. But so the CEO of Burisma did email Hunter Biden, thanking him for the opportunity to meet his father, yada, yada, yada. Um, then there's Bob Alinsky that's come out and revealed a bunch of <clears throat> details about uh, different business dealings in, in China. There was a recording that came out in which Hunter Biden was complaining about um, the spy chief of China who was a business partner of his. Um, I think his name was Patrick Ho and how the spy chief just disappeared. So that that was pretty disturbing. Um Dave Smith pointed out, you know, we always, uh, from a, a liberty angle, from the liberty side of things, we're always talking about the corruption and the cronyism. And I don't guess, as he said, it, it never really crossed my mind to consider um, cronyism between American industries and other, other nations. And uh, the fact that a, a sitting vice president was using his leverage to, or a former vice president, I guess, was using his leverage and his family's name to garner relationships in a place like China, where there is, um, you know, if you want to, if you want to look at like the exploitative nature of of capitalism in any way shape or form the Chinese have mixed it mixed that exploitative nature with their Marxist system and created this ultra fucking authoritarian industrial post-industrial nation um full of slave labor and concentration camps. And it's, you know, when you're investing money into those regions and into those areas, as many American corporations have done, um, you know, Apple pops into mind, you know, um, you, you see that there's, this this false narrative around politicians that they actually really do care um, and you know it's easy for us to see through in and he's he's acting you know biden and is is acting in ways propping his son up and using his influence in ways that many of us suspect that or have suspected for years that politicians do 
on a regular basis, um, more probably than not, actually are involved in operations such as this. Um, John Kerry's stepson, I believe it was, was involved in, in these dealings. And uh, so, as well as Joe Biden's brother, Jim. So it's pretty, uh, it's pretty damning stuff. It's pretty. Now, I, I don't expect anything to come from it. As most of you know, the media is not covering it. Those that have attempted to cover it get accused of Russian disinformation, of spreading Russian disinformation. And um, so they're doing everything they can to protect Biden from this story. Um, and, you know, I mean, with the election on Tuesday, obviously we're not going to see indictments come down before Tuesday. Nothing's going, I, I don't think uh, there's anything going to stop the election from moving forward or anything of that nature. I, you hear all kinds of crazy conspiracies from people that just make no sense. Um, they're, you know, as they're trying to make it sound like all these uh, things are about to happen. And uh, it's really hard to see, see anything, you know, taking shape. But from this, um, there was an explosion in the media yesterday from all of this. And um, Glenn Greenwald resigned from The Intercept due to them uh, blocking a story he wrote that included a lot of this information and it was very damning of the media as well as laying out the evidence of the uh, scandal surrounding Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and uh, he did a really thorough and excellent job as you would expect from such a journalist as Glenn Greenwald of laying it, laying it out. And the reason I was able to see is because he published it on Substack. And uh, so he, but he ended up resigning from the intercept because they would not publish it. They were publishing articles, calling it Russian disinformation as co-signed by Brennan and Clapper and all those scumbags. But they were not um, going to allow him, at, even as a co-founder and with uh, editorial uh, independence, they just refused to publish it. So he was going to exercise another clause in his contract and have it published elsewhere, and they refused him. So he resigned and published it on his Substack. So that is uh, pretty crazy that the media has taken such a turn since the election of Trump that they have just gone, just 
gone full, you know, full assault on the truth and um, evidence and, and actual news stories and actual journalism. And, you know, people wonder why they post a CNN article and, and we laugh at them. It's like, it's just like, we know this shit is fake. Unless it's talking about the weather, you know, um, if it's, if it's got, has anything to do with politics, we know that it's fake. We know, even if it's not fake, it's hyperbolic. Um, and it's more opinion. And if the facts don't, you know, uh, line up with my opinion, then I, I refuse to publish it or talk about it or, and that, that's just, um, a really damning turn that the media has taken these last four years. And I have a feeling it's something they are going to be paying for, for a long, long time. I don't think no matter what the outcome of this election is, I do not think that anybody or, or the majority of people are going to truly give any credence to this, this machine, this political machine that we once called media. And uh, it's really... I don't know. It's, I guess it's good for some people, you know, uh, your Matt Taibbi's, Michael Tracy, Glenn Greenwald, Caitlin Johnston. Uh, these people though, politically, I probably disagree with them on a ton of things. They, they are um, using modern technology to bypass this, this established, you know, monolith that is known as, you know, corporate press or the mainstream media. And this is, as far as I can tell, the ability to compete with, with corporate America, with the croniest, corrupt American machine in, in media and in journalism is, is a major plus. And I hope that these guys, once they see, once, once their things settle down in the media around them, I, I hope that they are able to take a step back and say, okay, we need to look at the, the regulations and the different laws that are act, act as a check and arbitrary barriers into other fields and other industries that are ruled by corporate America, by corporations in the United States. And we need to get rid of those barriers so that the independents and the individuals that desire competing with these firms may do so. They may do so honestly 
and on a level level playing field and by their own merit drawing in their own um, audiences or customers through their services and the and the products that they offer uh, as as superior products and services and superior cost compared to those of the the corporations that have utilized um, the the monopoly on violence and the the power of the government to close off those industries from competition and so hopefully you know that's another those are some very I wouldn't say powerful voices but some very influential voices in in modern America so it would be really nice to see them take up a mantle such as that and having having personally gone through it and have having to create it on their own in this way even though they are you know more progressive and left leaning um, politically it I'm, I'm sure the personal experience of having gone through this and competing head to head with the uh, the large Warner machines and you know uh, 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 Clear Channel and all these other companies that have you know developed these huge influential voices among the power elite and are able to to buy them off with licensing and uh, different regulations to shut off that field from uh, competing voices. Hopefully they will begin to speak out about how these artificial barriers uh, uh, to entry hurt the average person and only help the wealthy, only help the corporations, uh, the lobbyists, those that are politically connected and already have the money and influence in the political sphere. Anyway, that was kind of a side note, something I was thinking about earlier. So anyway, after this entire Hey, University of Arkansas. What do you know? Sorry. Um, so, so now that we've gone kind of through the whole Glenn Greenwald thing and what I think about that, which I think it's good. I, I think it's good for journalism. I think it's good for independent journalists. I think it's good for you know podcasters, YouTubers. Um, I think everybody's going to kind of, you know receive somewhat of come um from this and, and kind of be lifted up. Um, the more people we see, I mean, uh, Megan Kelly has started a podcast that seems to be doing pretty well. I've listened to a couple of episodes. Um, she's had some interesting conversations. I heard, uh, Camille Foster talking about a conversation she had with, uh, Mark Cuban, 
that I, I'm going to have to listen to here in the next few days. But um, so the more there, the, there are so many voices in the podcast space. There's so much competition. We're all competing for, you know, a finite amount of ears. But luckily, the where we're at in this space, and though we're not at the beginning of the space, we're certainly not at the end of the competitive uh, market of the space. And we've certainly not hit any barriers that would not allow us to expand our listenership and uh, in this space. And so uh, you're, you're looking at the poss the probably, I don't know, I'd say maybe 15 years before you kind of, you know, Maybe, maybe less than that, maybe 10 years before you start really shedding off those that don't want to, you know, those that have not succeeded and have not built up enough of a listenership to make it in the market. Hopefully by that time, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've gained enough of a listenership and, and, and enough of a name for myself that, you know, we can begin to, uh, do it on a, you know, I would say a more regular basis, maybe, uh, I don't know, four or five days a week. I don't know. Um, that I'd be like, I'd like to be writing too, but anyway, uh, that's just side thoughts here. So as far as the election is concerned, um, you know, I'm looking at it. Well, let's, all right, so the media, all right, so, so, so we've, we've all seen how completely insane the media went over the last three years. And we all know and recognize that there were those in what some would call the deep state or the permanent government, the the bureaucrats, the the career bureaucratic establishment, you know, intelligence agencies and state department and all these different factions of the government that don't change out every, you know, four to eight years have been fighting against Donald Trump. And I listened to a podcast earlier this week. I'm sure some of y'all heard it. It was the last unregistered podcast. And they were talking about the, the history of imperialism in the United States. And I'm listening to them talk about the different presidents and their views on war and and how they expanded the imperialist vision and expand, helped expand empire and how it evolved from, you know, the founding of the nation to what it is today and, and, and all these things. And, and I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm saying, OK, 
Wilson had this idea for the League of Nations. Now, it didn't work, but that idea was picked up by uh, after World War II, and they created the UN. And it to hear Thad um, and Stephen talk about it on the last unregistered, it was ultimately uh, an under I wouldn't say undercover. I don't know how, the right way. It was kind of like um, it was colonialism. It was a neo-colonialism creating a, an American hegemony around the world by ensuring the right, basically the right to vote, like a democratic um, establishment within the, within the United Nations so that the the countries not actually running the United Nations, which was run by the United States, actually had a point of grievance and could could actually you know air their grievances about the governing of the United States around the world. Basically, is what it was. So it was kind of kind of the way it at least like swung in my mind. And I started thinking about the grand chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski and how that entire book had broken the world up into sections and, and how he said, this is the actions we need to take in order to guarantee American primacy and hegemony across the globe and how we must approach this and the risks and 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 how how to interact with each individual region or country um, or continent so that so that we're able to accomplish uh, American hegemony across the globe and these are some of the obstacles we're going to be facing and this is how <clears throat> I feel like we should be be approaching that. And so, in order to curb Azerbaijan, we're going to have to get get in close with with Turkey, you know that type of deal. And how do you how do you work all these different relationships around the world and do it in a diplomatic fashion, or or attempt to do it diplomatically? And you can look at um, the uh, uh, Pete. Oh, what's his name? Oh, I can't think of his name right now. The uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I can't think of the guy's name right now off the top of my head for some reason. And you can kind of see how he would talk about it. Like you're going to send in, you know, kind of the the corporate, you know, uh, representatives to try to make a deal. And then if that doesn't work, then you send in the CIA you know, the jackals. And if that doesn't work, then you just start a war with the, the people and you fuck them up, you know? And so, so that was, uh, that's kind of what, like what the whole 
grand chessboard. It's kind of laying out. It's laying out the laying out the the game board for you, so you can kind of see like what the obstacles are and 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 the the how these different regions play against each other uh, in the international community and this that and the other. And it's all an expansion of this idea of American hegemony, American primacy around the world, that America is the lone superpower since World War II, and that um, in order to keep peace around the world, America has to remain the lone superpower. And in order to do that, we have to have these military exercises around the world and create empire and, 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 and you know, remain the lone empire in the world. And um, that means not to allow, you know, uh, China to uh, to get too strong militarily, um, not to allow Russia to uh, get too strong, you know, economically. And, and so you're having to limit these things. And by expanding NATO and and you know, getting Ukraine to join NATO, then you're you're actually putting it, it's like a stopgap on on Russia and this you know things of that nature. So I'm looking at these different ideas, and I'm like, so, and then I'm thinking back to how the uh, the director of uh, uh, of, of national security. Um, not the director of national security, the, um, shit, I'm drawing a blank here. I'm, I'm trying to drive and concentrate through this work zone. I'm sorry, guys. So, so the, the, the people that were, um, testifying against Trump, whether they come from the NSC and, uh, during his impeachment, they were testifying against him, And these guys were, you know, long embedded bureaucrats that had been long embedded, you know, um, as as directorates through the military and into intelligence and these things. And so they were upset that Trump was changing the policies. He was changing the way that America was dominating. He was he was questioning NATO. He was he was questioning these wars. He was questioning, you know, um, the role in the world. Then he started started with these peace deals, and you have these, you know, he's getting uh, Serbia and Kosovo to sit down at the table together. He's getting the UAE to recognize Israel. He's getting Sudan and Israel to stop the the war that has been ongoing between Sudan and Israel and to to actually recognize each other as equals on the on the world stage. And so I'm thinking about this and I'm like so Trump approached this as a business problem and not as a an American problem, not as a governing problem. It wasn't our place to govern Sudan, it wasn't our place to to shape them and mold them into our image in order to put them in a position to where 
they would be acting towards Israel the way we would act towards Israel. What Trump did is he approached him and he said, look, this got to stop. We're all killing each other. What are we killing each other over? It makes no sense to me. We're all losing money. Nobody's making any money doing this. It's bad for you. It's bad for your people. It's bad for Israel. It's bad for Israel's people. It's bad for Israel's reputation. It's bad for us because we got to get involved. What do we have to do to make it stop? And, you know, they go through their little, well, well, this is what we want. This is what we want. This is what we want. This is what do we expect. This is what we expect. And, you know, I don't know. A few months go by. They're negotiating back and forth. And bam, you, you get a deal. And, you know, you get the, I don't, I, I don't know if it's prime minister of Sudan and, and Netanyahu on the phone together during a Trump, you know, press conference. And sitting there asking, answering questions together. And everybody sounds happy. And America doesn't need a presence in Sudan anymore. And so Trump is is curbing in certain ways, in specific ways. Now he's not doing a great job. I know he's saying he's doing a wonderful job. That could be that could be a result of you know blocks that have been put on him when he's tried to you know, make deals with the Taliban and sit down with the Afghan government and the Taliban and negotiate between the two. But now we're starting to see this summer, especially that he has the ability to sit down with these leaders of foreign countries and say, okay, look, 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 look. You're not going to get everything you want. You're not going to get everything you want. What are the bare minimums we have to get so that we can start working together Start creating trade. And so to, so now you're seeing like flights, direct flights from Bahrain to Tel Aviv, which never existed before. All in a matter of a couple of months. Because he approached it not as the government of the world and the governing factor or the principle or, or whatever. He approached it more like an arbitration. And and put himself at in a mediocre spot in the in the middle, and he's arbitrating between the two countries, saying, "Okay, look, we're we're trying to get somewhere. Let's get somewhere." And he got somewhere, and that's great. I'm I'm happy. I'm not happy he decided not to pull out of Yemen. I'm not happy he vetoed that. I would never vote for Trump. This isn't a let's go praise Trump fucking rally. I'm just making a point that. These actions, the way that he approached the global stage as if every country is a sovereign nation, including the United States, is threatening to American primacy, American hegemony. And these actors behind the scenes have been working with the media, inflating, uh, throwing at a hominem, using hyperbole, um, blowing up every little thing that Trump does. I mean, if he farted, you would think it was a national disaster. And so they're, they're all working together to, to, you know, cut his 
presidency off at the knees, and they have since day one. And so we see foreign policy-wise minimal results, you know, even though there are some results, they're minimal. I mean, by saying I'm going to pull the troops out of Syria and just moving them to another area of Syria to to guard the oil, you know, I that was a little, you know, that was that was kind of a, I don't know, that was kind of a scummy thing to do. If you're going to pull them out, just pull them out. It's not like we need to be there. Never should have been there. Never needed to get involved in that. You know, whenever Congress actually does vote to pull troops from a region it's the it's to stop you know assisting Saudi Arabia in a genocide in Yemen and he vetoes it says no we're going to keep doing that that's okay we're going to we're going to keep doing that one those people deserve to die they they're the poorest country in the region but yeah we're going to keep killing those people so that's a little bit shitty um you know but it, it's not but I do see the effort that he's put forward in uh, in Afghanistan. Though he did inflate the troop numbers, um, I think that was when Bolton was there with him, and he's like, "Yeah, well, okay, we'll try it your way for for a little bit." And uh, oh wow, what do you know? Like I said, your way doesn't work. So now we're gonna try it my way, and so. When uh, when he did pull them, or when he did fire Bolton, then the troop numbers did begin to come come back down, and so that's not so horrible. But it's that threat that he has that that he has a different idea of what the global stage is made up of. When he was flying around the world as a businessman. He would enter another country, and he saw it as another country. Whereas politicians see it as a, a, an extension of the United States. They, they don't see it as another country. They see the U.S.'s role in that country and in dominating that country and manipulating that country. And he doesn't look at other countries in that way. He looks at other countries much the same way as he looks at other businesses. He's like, okay, that's yours. Now I need something from you. So now I got to find what you need for me so we can go back and forth. And politicians, they don't look at it that way. They take their cues from the intelligence agencies. They take their cues from the state department. They're being they're being given directive on how to continue the long established foreign policy of the United States as the supreme leader of the world. And Trump doesn't appear to have bought into that, you know, though at times he could, like I said, he could have done much, much better. He doesn't appear to have bought into the empire, into imperialism or the neo-colonialism of the United Nations and NATO, for that matter. Though he has expanded NATO um, more so than Barack Obama, and uh, you know that's that's disturbing. But 
that might have been pressure put on him through the whole Russiagate investigation, in which he felt like he had no choice but to comply with the the um, intelligence agencies in the State Department in this particular arena, because if not, they would question his allegiance to the United States and uh, possibly make things a lot more difficult for him than they already had. So, given that Boeing and, and General Electric are major sponsors of these media networks that seem to hire every retired intelligence officer, uh, director of national intelligence, uh, FBI director, and any other department of state or justice uh, retiree as a journalist, you would think that, uh, you know, it, 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 it just makes sense that they are being they're receiving their directives from somewhere. They're receiving the official American hegemonic line in that any time that Donald Trump, you know, attempts to sway in any way, shape, or form, they are supposed to attack, 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 attack. And, you know, it was it was quite obvious, you know, when he dropped the bombs in Syria, it was the first time he was presidential. Look how beautiful those bombs are. You know, it was it was creepy. It was it's like the fuck. this is like some caricature of some evil fuck that, that you have in your mind for some like comic book. This isn't real. Like People don't actually say shit like that, you know. Those bombs are so beautiful. It's like, all right, man, whatever, dude. Uh, who was that? Chris Hayes or <laughs> I don't remember. It was anyway. It was the first time he was presidential. He, he heard all that, and the only the only person is, and it's quite interesting to me. And I don't know if any of y'all have noticed this, but the only person that works for CNN that has appeared even the slight slightest bit fair. In all of this is the one person I thought was the craziest out of all of them, Van Jones. Like during the whole three years of Trump's presidency, Van Jones is the only one that has been like, well, I don't know, man. He's, he's done all right here and he's done a few good things. And I understand like he didn't talk how you want him to. And that sometimes he says things and you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? But but he's done, he does, he's done some okay things. And I mean, he gets ripped to shreds every time he does this. And I find that weird because like before Trump, I always thought Van Jones was just this crazy motherfucker. I just thought, I was like, this, this dude is some psychopath, like Marxist. Like, I'm not sure what to think about this guy. And then he's the voice of reason on CNN during the Trump presidency. 
it was like, okay, well, I was wrong about him, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so that that's been interesting to me. But okay, so given this trillion dollar propaganda machine that is the media that is absolutely without a doubt obviously in bed with the intelligence agencies are full-throatedly against Donald Trump I'm not certain that Donald Trump can pull it off and this is what I was saying whenever I was talking to Ryan. Now, Ryan told me he was about 95% sure that Donald Trump was going to win. He might have changed by now. Things change. Uh, he might be a little bit higher with this Hunter Biden story going around. I don't know. Um, but here's what I've noticed, because as I've emphasized many times before, I watch both sides of the media. I watch progressives. I watch well, all sides. I watch progressives. I watch some neoliberals. Uh, I watch some conservatives. And then I watch some uh, independents. You know, and I'm thinking like Tim Pool. I, I consider him an independent. Uh, not to mention the libertarians I, I listen to and I pay attention to. Uh, most of those guys that I know aren't voting for either one of them, whether they're not voting at all or they're voting for Joe Jorgensen. They're not voting for Trump or Biden. So. That's a moot point. Don't need to get into libertarian talking points. Really has nothing to do with what's going on with the election. Now, what I've noticed, progressives are all in on Trump is going to lose by 200 fucking uh, points in the Electoral College. I've seen Kyle Kalinske laughing, saying it would be easier for Biden to get 400 electoral votes than it would be for Trump to win. I think he's dead wrong. I think Kyle Kalinske is a smart guy. I think he's an actual fair guy, though I disagree with him on a lot of things. I don't take it personally. I don't think he's mean-hearted or anything like that. I think we, just dis we, would, we would just disagree, and I'm okay with that. Because uh, I disagree with my wife a lot, and I still love her, so I think I can disagree with Kyle Kalinske and be like, "You're still all right, bruh." So, um, but no, I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I do not think it's going to be easier for Biden to get 400 electoral votes than it is for Trump to win the, uh, a re-election. I, I I don't think that's reality. Um, a lot of liberals are saying very similar things and they point out that, well, if, if it were to fall like it is today and the polls, um, were, are, are correct, then Trump only gets 181 electoral votes and Biden gets what? 356 or something like that or 357. Okay, fine. But I don't. Necessarily, I don't think the polls are right. If you look at, at the registered voters of Republicans, Democrats, Independents in 2016, it was Republicans 26%, or yeah, 26%, no, 27%, and 
Democrats had 32% registered and independents had 40% registered. This year, it's Republicans 28%, Democrats 29%, and independents 42%. So Democrats have lost percentage and three percentage points. Republicans have gained one percentage point and independents have gained two percentage points. You don't know where these independent votes are going. I have no clue. I don't know where these independent votes are going. But there are more independents. So something's happened there, right? Now, so I, I don't think you're looking at this massive blowout. But if you listen to the conservative talk shows, you listen to a Glenn Beck, not Dan Bongino. Dan Bongino, if you listen to him, you're you're just listening to straight propaganda. You have to learn. If you're going to listen to this guy, I promise you, I, he's he's entertaining at times. He's kind of goofy, really fucking uh, not really funny, though he thinks he is. Um, but if you're going to listen to him, you have to listen to get the facts, to pull the facts out, and then go read the articles that he's reading, and then read alternate articles that cover or covering the same topic and try to make sure that you're getting a good good alignment. I listen to him just because I, uh, I want to hear like what is being said and I don't even listen to all his shows. I listen to like one or two shows a week, not even the full show about about 20 minutes, 30 minutes of it just to kind of get an idea of what's happening. not because I really think that he's onto anything. but if you don't if you don't understand, how the conservatives think, which I guess I kind of do because I, I've been around it like for a long time. But if you don't really understand where they're coming from, then it's kind of hard to 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 fill in like what are they talking about. And so I can kind of see it, and I can say, oh, okay, this is this is a uh, you know blown up bullshit here, and what you should really be looking at is yada yada yada, this that and the other. So, um, but. That's another story. Sorry. Um, anyway, so so Glenn Beck is probably, as far as I'm concerned, like one of the easiest to listen to, probably because I listened to him for years. And he doesn't he, – he had his moments in the past when he was on Fox where he was a little over the top. But as he's gotten older and he, he suffered some health problems, he's calmed down a lot. And he still goes on – his little tirades every once in a while, which I find entertaining. You know, it's like listening to Alex Jones. You find those nuggets of truth within these tirades, and you're like, all right, well, that's something to hold on to. That's something to think about. But, you know, he's like a mellowed out Alex Jones, you know, that looks like, uh, you know, what is it, the KFC guy? Yeah. Cap Colonel Sanders. Um, so, so, you know, I, I find it valuable to listen to him. Um, plus he has, he surrounds himself with like people that think differently. So you'll get, if you, if you're watching him, sometimes you'll see hear a hardcore Republican, like he'll have Bill O'Reilly talk every once in a while, but sometimes you'll get Eric July, you know, like you get, you get ANCAPs and, and libertarians. So I think he's a fair guy. I don't think he's like this hardliner, like this is, you know, if you don't believe what I believe, like you're you're evil or I, I don't like you. So I appreciate that he does, you know, 
he, he is able to be fair and, and have these conversations that maybe some other people won't have. That being said, he seemed a bit panicky this week. He has seemed quite a bit panicky. And that tells me, because I know that he's involved, that he's connected. So that tells me he knows things. He knows something, right? I don't know what he knows, but he knows something. But there have been three stories I've seen in the last couple of weeks where Joe Biden's campaign has come out yelling, screaming, the polls are wrong. Don't, don't, don't get comfortable. Go vote. Go vote. Now, maybe they're just doing that because they saw what happened with Hillary Clinton in 2016. Uh, but to see Biden in Minnesota doing a rally when he was supposed to have Minnesota in the bag, I think they had him up by like 13 or some shit like that. Like he was supposed to be winning by some outrageous amount. Like, not even challenged in Minnesota. And he's back in Minnesota, I think today or yesterday, trying to nail it all down. That tells me they're not as comfortable as the media would have you believe. Um, You would think that he would be going to Ohio or Texas or, um, you know, one of these states that's a little closer. You know, North Carolina. I think I heard was really close. Um, so that tells me that they're seeing something from their internal polls that we're not seeing from 538 or Rasmussen or whatever polls you're looking at. There's something that the media is not telling us. There's something that's not being said. So my prediction for this presidency, this election, is that it's going to come down to the end. That it's going to be tight. It's going to probably be, be contested in the courts. That there's, it's going to be a battle. Um, this is going to be, you know, George W. Bush, you know, type. What, who was that, Al Gore that he was up against? Uh, it's going to be that kind of battle. It's going to be brutal. It's going to be nasty. It's going to be ugly. And I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to enjoy the blood sports, man. Like, this is going to be fun. I would be sitting back man, every night and just be like, oh, look at these motherfuckers. You know? Uh, either way, until there's... <laughs> until they figure out who wins, expect more riots. Expect the riots to ramp back up on the fourth. Um, maybe even the third. I don't know. They might chill out and see what happens, but um, if it comes to midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and they haven't declared a winner, these guys might just get, decide to go out and burn down every city out there. So I have no idea, um, but I, I expect more. So y'all stay safe when it comes to that. I'll be uh, I'll be watching. Next week, obviously, um, I'll record an episode. I don't. It just depends. I might record something on Tuesday, just depending on what what um, polls are saying, and if I think it's valuable to get back on and talk about it. But you know, 
as for now, that's about all I got to say about that. So I'm Tommy Salmons. Late.